Our speaker this evening is Amal Abdelhakim Douglas, Senior Consultant at the DMC Consultancy, a member of the UK Institute of Fundraising, a board member at the NNREC, and more recently, the current chair of Norfolk Black History Month in Norfolk. He studied business administration at what is now the University of Technology in Kingston, Jamaica, before returning to the UK to continue his professional accountancy studies. He was for two years director of the Islamic Resource Centre and before that a part-time tutor at the Afwari Saturday School in Brixton, South London, teaching English, history and mathematics. He co-authored the book Zakat, Raising a Fallen Pillar, which has already been translated into Spanish, Indonesian and Danish and written several other publications, including an interview with Rastan X and For the Coming Women. So can I please welcome Amal Douglas. Good evening, everyone. Assalamu alaikum. Um, I wanted to start by saying how, um, on my fourth birthday in 1968, you know, that my party was rudely uh, interrupted and about the news of the assassination of um, Martin Luther King and how it really affected me. But obviously, at four years old, I didn't really. Um, <coughs> I don't remember much, to be honest. So um, my sort of political aspirations didn't start that early. But um, 1968 has been called by many a year of revolution. And to be honest, some memorable and significant things did happen. And I'll start by mentioning some of them. And I'll in attempt to include lots of what went on in the um, sort of wider African diaspora, sort of generally where you find black people in big numbers, Africa itself, North America, South America, the Caribbean, and of course here in Europe. Um, so I'll sort of mention a few things that, that, that came out when I was sort of researching the year. Some of them have dates, and I sort of go through the dates. January the 30th, the Vietnam War, which obviously was a major factor in 1968. The Tet Offensive began in January, or January the 30th, which was the, um, the Viet Congs, the Vietnamese striking back basically at the Americans, the major offensive. Um, by March of that year, the Mai Lai Massacre happened, which um, was quite a horrible, quite a terrible massacre by American troops. Um, of Vietnamese, particularly one village in Vietnam where the American soldiers, even those today talk about it, they actually sort of just went mad. They, they killed men, women, children, babies, rape, everything you can think of happened quite terrible. 1968, talking about. During March the same month, students at Howard University in Washington began a series of rallies, protests, and a five-day sit-in to press, protest over its ROTC, that's the Reserve Officer Training Corps program, and demanding a more Afrocentric curriculum. March the 22nd, eight students occupy administrative offices at Nanterre University in France and launched, well, later, later in the year, launched France into basically a revolution. April the 4th, we said Martin Luther King was assassinated. A few days later, and, and that, that actually begins a whole wave of riots for the next few days in America, in many, many cities. And a few days later, police and the FBI ambush a group of Black Panther members 
and gunned down 17-year-old Bobby Hutton as he tried to surrender. Again in April, US President Lyndon Johnson signs the Civil Rights Act of 1968. So some might say that all this demonstrating had an effect. May of 68, agitations and strikes in Paris lead many to believe that a revolution is starting that nearly brings down the French government. I say nearly. For the sports fans, again in May, Manchester United beat Benfica to win the, first, the European Cup, the first time a, an English club had done that. June of that year, US presidential candidate Robert Kennedy is shot, again assassinated in um, Los Angeles. And in July, Saddam Hussein becomes vice president of the Revolutionary Council in Iraq. Again in July, Pope Paul VI publishes the Humanae Vitae condemning birth control. And in August, the Soviets invade Czechoslovakia with 200,000 Warsaw Pact troops and 5,000 tanks. In the UK, the new Race Relations Act comes, comes into force, making it illegal to refuse housing, employment, or public services to people because of their ethnic background. It also sets up the Race Relations Board and the Community Relations Commission to promote harmonious community relations. The same year, Swaziland becomes independent from Britain and joins the British Commonwealth. In the summer, in August, France again explodes its first hydrogen bomb, thus becoming the world's fifth nuclear power. And in September, 150 women protest against the Miss America pageant in America, saying it's, saying it's exploitative of women. September again, the MCC uh, tour of South Africa, the cricket tour of South Africa is cancelled when the South Africans refuse to accept the presence of Basil Oliveira, uh, a cape-coloured uh, from Cape Town in the side, who was playing for England. NASA launches the Apollo 7, the first manned Apollo space mission, and the first female black officer joins the Metropolitan Police Force in London. And I didn't get the name, I actually forgot the name, I do apologise. <laughs> um, October 16th, uh, the Mexico City Olympics, people may remember the famous Black Power salute, Tommy Smith and uh, John Carlos. Um, they gave during the medal ceremony of the 200 metres and they got in a lot of trouble for that. And that very same day, riots kick off in Jamaica because Walter Rodney uh, himself was, was the day before expelled from Jamaica or at least denied entry by the Prime Minister Hugh Shearer. Um, and to be honest, I only learned the date of the riots kicking off in Jamaica today. So 40 years ago today, the 16th of October, I, I didn't realise it was today, and also the Black Power Salute Olympics was actually today, the 16th of October. Um, and I didn't know that today, until today. And it also led me to reflect that um, in 1968, back in Jamaica, my, my grandfather had been involved in politics, my mother's side, and actually um, there was a lady called Enid Bennett who came to, was the MP for my area, and she came to, 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 to power, or if you like, won the election in 1968 in Jamaica, she became an MP. And she, I think she won seven successive elections, you know, one of those real safe seats. And um, it also just reminded me, sort of a bit of an aside, that um, this thing about it's not who you know, but who knows you. And I remember in an incident with uh, Miss Bennett when she was the Minister of Local Government, so in charge of all of the local governments in, in Jamaica. And my brother 
had gone for a, a summer job at the local um, parish council and he'd gone to see the man who, who gives out the jobs and he'd asked if there were any jobs and he said no we're full there are no jobs and he said okay and he sort of continued on his journey to Kingston and went to see Miss Bennett in her office because we had access to Miss Bennett we were quite privileged in that sense he went to see her and said oh I'm trying to get a summer job so she gave him a letter and said take this to Spanish town and give it to this man and the man he had to give the letter to was the same man he'd seen earlier in the day and he said oh, okay that's different so it's <laughs> and of course he got the summer job so again it just, so it is sometimes who you know and not who knows or who knows you in fact um, and then November of that year um, Republican challenger Richard Nixon defeat, defeats Vice President Hubert Humphrey and becomes the President of America. That's 1968 itself. But what was going on before, well, maybe just after 1968? Nelson Mandela had already been in prison for around five or six years. As I, I was already born, but not just me, I mean the whole, what we call the, the children of the Windrush generation. Those people who'd come from the Caribbean, particularly in, in the sort of 50s and 60s. So now all their children were being born and at school in, in Britain and become part of the landscape. Um, many Caribbean countries and African countries were getting their independence around that time. Um, yeah. Now, a few days ago, and in fact, some of what's uh, being shown behind me refers to this. Um, I watched a documentary, this documentary, about an outstanding 21-year-old Fred Hampton, chairman of the Illinois chapter of the Black Panthers in America, who in 1969 was murdered in his bed right next to his eight months pregnant partner by a police death squad which included at least one black officer. This marked the beginning of the end of the Black Panther movement as a political force, as both Huey P. Newton and uh, Bobby Seale, the founders, by now had been effectively neutralized. In fact, it took me quite some time to grasp the significance of the Black Panthers and what the major fear of them was. But when you examine their language, it wasn't really about black power. They were talking about oppressed people everywhere. And they were anti-capitalist, very much socialist. And this is the pattern which you, you really have to remember. Once you criticize the financial system, your threat level rises. Once you start to talk to and about other oppressed people, your threat level rises. Once you begin to see and articulate that the people behind the oppression here are the same people behind the oppression there, then your card is definitely marked. It happened with Marcus Garvey, with Malcolm X, and again with Fred Hampton, and continues today. The question I hope to, I hope to answer is what would, or even should, these people be talking about today if they were here? Well, in 1968... No one seemed to be talking about perhaps what I see as the most significant act of the year in terms of what reverberates with us today. American President Lyndon Johnson coldly and casually, not that I actually heard him, but I, I envisioned it that way, um, but he announces that from the 24th of June, US government issued silver certificates will no longer be redeemable for silver. In other words, what I call a blatant act of theft you invest in silver and you have a certificate and when you're ready to, which says that when you're ready you can redeem that, that certificate for silver and then at some point the government says we've changed our minds 
you now only get $10 for it. So while Americans are protesting civil rights and trying to stop the Vietnam War, the world is in revolution, the financial institutions and the government combine to slip that one in. And as with most thieves, you get away with that one, you attempt an even bolder robbery. So a few years later, in 1971, the new president, Richard Nixon, decides that the very last, already tenuous link that the dollar has to gold will also be broken when he suspends the Bretton Woods Agreement. Perhaps I should take a moment to give a brief and perhaps very crude explanation of how banks operate. And for the economists in the audience, if there are any, it, uh, it might seem very simplistic and crude. The complaint that most people have against banks is about bank charges, interest or the repossessing of uh, houses when people default on their mortgages. However, compared to the true nature of banking, that's nothing. To me, that's just like a man calling you a nasty name. But calling you a nasty name when they've already broken into your house, killed your children, raped, raped your wife and taken all your assets. That's, that's how I see it. So just criticising the banks for interest is really the tip of the iceberg. To really understand this, we have to take a look at why banks came to be. That means I may go into sort of a bit of a story mode. So let's go back to a time when people were using mainly gold and silver as currency. There were no banknotes, indeed there were no banks. And the world, let alone the, let alone the word, let alone the concept of inflation, was almost unheard of. It's going back to story mode, I said. In this community, there would have been many traders, among them goldsmiths. For our purposes, and for reasons that will become apparent, we'll call, this, we'll call one of these goldsmiths Mr. Goldsteel. Now, Mr. Goldsteel, the shrewd businessman that he is, realised that in times of abundance, gold and silver coins can create quite a bulge in the pocket. So, therefore, decided that instead of people travelling around with all these valuable coins, which might get lost or stolen, he would be willing to store it safely for people, for a fee, of course. So far, so good. All this could be considered above board. You gave Mr. Goldstein your money and he gave you a receipt. When you gave him back the receipt, he gave you money. And that is naturally, uh, and naturally he charged for this service. Now, Mr. Goldstein realised that there was never a time when he did not have at least someone's money in what was now his own bank. Because at any given day, only a handful of his customers would come to the bank and withdraw their money. So he also realised that people, for convenience, had begun to trade with receipts. In other words, Peter would say to Paul, I will pay you three gold pieces for this item, but my money is in the bank, so take this receipt of mine and give it to Mr. Goldsteel, and he will give you the money out of my account. You probably endorse the receipt. In that respect, everyone knew that the receipts were not money, were not actual money, could be used to retrieve money. Therefore, in many instances, the receipts were as good as gold, because everyone knew they could convert the receipts to gold at any time. The first really naughty thing that our banker does is start using his customers' money for his own purposes. Knowing he could put it back, sorry, knowing he could pack, put it back by the time they came to withdraw, uh, withdraw their deposits, and in any case, they wouldn't all come at one time. This logically, from the banker's point of view, led to our banker lending out other people's money without their knowledge and charging interest on the loan. Some depositors even cottoned onto this and demanded a piece of the action by receiving a share of the interest. Eventually. As people's confidence in the receipts grew, Mr. Goldsteel didn't even have to give them gold when he made a loan, just the receipt. And of course, being an unprincipled, greedy fellow, he eventually started to write and lend out receipts for gold that he didn't even have in his bank. So first he's lending out other people's money, and now he's lending out non-existent money. But what was the result of all this? One, inflation. Seemingly more money 
uh, in the economy chasing the same amount of goods and services, so obviously prices rise. Uh, two, some bankers got lynched or ran out of town when people discovered what they were up to. And three, Mr. Goldstool became very, very rich. The bankers became very rich. And as the bankers or the gold steals moved through the times, often it was announced that your paper can still be exchanged for gold, but not as much gold as before. Um, but also they say, remember, you're actually being paid interest on your savings, and these shares and today these hedge funds will actually increase uh, more quickly than the value of gold. Usually very untrue. And all that anyway changed in 1971 when Mr. Nixon announced, now paper is money, like it or lump it. In fact, all other currencies were now linked to the dollar instead of linked to gold. The question is, why are we still using Mr. Goldsteel's receipts? And somebody will say, well, we're not. We're using the Bank of England's receipts. Look, it says, I promised to pay the bearer five pounds of... Again, five pounds of what? That's the question. In fact, the Federal Reserve in America is not even a government-owned bank. It's a private bank with uh, private board members, not accountable to the government of America, but they print the money. So the, the, the most sought-after currency in the world, the US dollar, is printed by a private bank. In the past, the church considered all this type of thing usury and totally condemned these practices and charging of interest. That is until they fell in line and usury got re redefined as charging excessive interest, 10% or something like that. What next? Fornication is uh, allowed so long as it's only a little, something like that. But let me keep the references to 1968. We already mentioned Pope Paul issuing his proclamation about birth, birth control. But what, what of today's church leaders? In 2008, we find the most senior church leaders in the land at least speaking about these important matters. So when Ugandan-born Dr. Sentenu, the Archbishop of York, gets the chance to address the gathering of senior bankers directly, he says, These are testing times, I know. You have shareholders to consider, and that many of you have and that many of you have had to make tough staffing decisions. Some of you must have sleepless nights and your home life would have suffered. These are tremendously testing times. I don't want to impose any more burdens on you, only to say that the immense power you wield, even if it doesn't feel like that, is given to you by God with the, for the benefit of the whole community. Not quite the spirit of Jesus throwing out the moneylenders out of the temple. And to be honest, the Muslim Council of Britain would probably say something very much the same. The more senior, Dr. Rowan Williams, the Archbishop of Canterbury, does a lot better. He writes, Of course, business is not philanthropy. Securing profit is a legitimate, if not morally supreme, motivation for people. And the definition of what's good for the human community can be pretty widely drawn. It's true that as well as, it's true as well that in some circumstances, loosening up a financial regime to allow for entrepreneurs and innovators to create wealth is necessary to draw whole populations out of poverty. But it is sort of fundamentalism to say that this alone will secure stable and just outcomes everywhere. So Dr. Williams, I think, is at least getting the point. But don't for one moment think I'm advocating someone running off to bomb a bank. That is definitely not the answer. That's a child's response. My grandmother taught me that. She said, if you have to discipline a child by slapping the child, that... Don't use your hand, use a belt or a slipper, she say. And I say, why? She said, because the child will then turn its hatred, if you like, to that belt or slipper and they'll throw it away and hide it. But your arms, your hands must be a place of love and comfort for the child. And uh, so it's true. So we don't, we don't focus on the banks. We don't say the physical building is it. 
Uh, we don't engage in burning of flags. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing about the current financial system is that it's unsustainable. It has the seeds of its own destruction built into it, and some of these seeds are now blossoming. The, the anti-capitalists or anti-globalisation people don't have to do anything. It's crashing around us. We actually have to get prepared for the aftermath so that our communities are not totally ravaged by the collapse, so that we don't start acting like animals or killing one another. But we have to start putting things into place now, from today, and I'll come back to that shortly. So that's the banks. They can now legally make money out of nothing. The very act of of lending you non-existent money creates more money. And one consequence of all this is that the wealth of Africa, the wealth of the third world, has been sold, or is being sold, for bits of paper, like monopoly money. Only given value because we are told it has value, because we believe it has value. So, in fact, the ultimate confidence trick. But what about the rest of the financial system? How many of us actually understand what's going on with the international financial system? The collapse of Northern Rock, Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, the credit crunch, the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and this whole thing about futures, hedge funds, subprime lending. The politicians most certainly don't. And the current governor of the Bank of England doesn't seem to either. I think he admits to it, actually. (laughs) Doesn't all this give a lie to our democracy, in a sense? Can you imagine the head of any multi-billion pound or dollar or euro company leaving the fate of their business in the hands of either a Bush or a Clinton dependent on an election result? Or similarly, a Blair, Brown or Cameron? It's not credible. It's not real. On entering office, Clinton was told to reverse all his social welfare policies that he campaigned on, to such an extent that some even called him the greatest Republican president ever. In practice, Blair outtoured the Tories, despite being a Labour Prime Minister. Someone other than us, someone other than the electorate, is obviously pulling their strings. So for the political activist, the community activist, the freedom fighter, the Islamic activist, the true fair trade activist, and even the nationalists, it's not that the battleground has changed, is that for the first time, those who've actually been looking have been able to choose, get a true glimpse of the, if you like, the real enemy. And in each case, it points to the perpetrators of this usurious financial system, which now dictates how we do our transactions, what we transact with, our attitudes to trade, and how we actually measure wealth. At home or abroad, if you want to tackle poverty, crime, racism, and even genocide, then you have to look at the financial system, which is the thing that most shapes how we think. And financial trade or economic justice will always come down to three things. Currencies, contracts, and markets. It's always been about currencies, contracts, and markets. So what about contracts, currencies, and markets? In talking about the banks, we've already covered the currency, which is printed bits of paper at best, but now not even that, just digits on a computer screen. So we know that the banker makes money out of nothing, while the rest of us slave away chasing the paper, or the digits. In fact, if we want to get a clear definition of what usury really is, we have to turn to the Muslims, and the, the Muslims but even that traditional understanding that the Muslims had of, of what usury is, is under, is under assault, from both without and from within. So you even get people now, you know, Muslims themselves, actually sanctioning and um, uh, promoting things called ludicrous things like Islamic banks. 
which in fact really is a ludicrous concept, which really is equivalent to saying Islamic whiskey because we now call the, the alcohol content something else. Or something. It's really exactly the same thing. And if you do your homework, you'll see that often the people who sanction these Islamic banks are usually the ones who either sanction or at least keep silent about suicide bombing. But that's another story which we'll get into. Commercial or financial contracts are an integral part of society and human interaction, so we have to keep them clean. We have to be able to recognise those commercial practices that devastate a society and outlaw them finally, but initially refuse to be party to them and shun those who practice them. Now, the historically-minded person amongst us will discover that prohibitions identical to those of Islam against various business practices were also offences un under English common law, which were, later, which were later obliterated, I mean, those laws were later obliterated in the rise of the co current commercial order. Transaction, transactions such as engrossing, which is buying up a commodity in order to control the price, basically like monopoly, forestalling, the act of going out to meet traders before they get to the market, undercutting, which is deliberately selling goods at a cheaper price in order to, to kill off competition, and usury, which is literally unjustif an, unjust an unjustified increase, which can be because you're charging more for smaller quantities or you're charging interest. We've not, even, we've not even talked about buying and selling products not yet manufactured, uh, not yet grown, and then doing sort of futures trading on these things. We've not, we've not even got that far yet, which is really another level altogether. So finally, we come to the third of the three things I mentioned, and I think the key thing we have to address, markets. And by this I mean actual physical spaces for people to trade, to buy and sell. If you want to talk about human rights then this was always and still needs to be the right of the individual to have free and equal access to the marketplace without tax or hindrance. Big trader, small trader, it doesn't matter. Today, most would-be traders are priced out of the marketplace through rent and rates, forcing people into employment or wage slavery, as employment is often called. We need permits to sell on the street, licenses, we have to pay rent and rates for shops, VAT, custom duty, road tax, PAYE, employees, national insurance, and corporation tax. And these are all obstacles to people becoming enterprising. And so in our call to action, this is where we'll start. What I hope I've, what I hope I've conveyed so far is that we've all been adversely affected by the current financial system. Countries have been ravaged and we've lost much of our humanity. But make no mistake, the financial system is crashing around us. Um, did you know that Iceland was a big banking power? I don't know. We can either go down with it or get prepared. And I advocate being prepared. So I'll try and outline those steps I think we need to take in order to be properly prepared. And again, it comes down to markets, currencies and contracts. I'm going to focus on that and what we should do here in Norfolk, Nelson's County, and in this fine city of Norwich. But I'll first start with a sort of a quick mention of uh, Africa again. Countries in Africa in particular need to start insisting on being paid for their goods in tangible assets, whether it be oil, gold, uranium, wood. And the fair trade people need to start advocating this 
and also giving third world producers direct access to European markets. Forget aid. Aid doesn't work, seriously. It, people need to trade. This is where Bono and Mr. Geldof need to start. If they want to make poverty history, and this is known, and this is known they know this, if they want to make poverty history, then you have to start with trade. And that's what's coming out of Africa. That's what's coming from the continent itself. So let's talk about markets. Locally, you must establish open, free and fair markets. I mean on the level of Chapelfield Shopping Centre. That's the level we're talking about, really. So I'm really getting down to practical things now that we can do. Um, so we, we, we establish these open markets on that size and that scale and that grandeur, if you like. Um, but we forget the high street, high street chains. We invite individuals to turn up every day and trade without charge. No reserve spaces. We announce it across Norfolk, across East Anglia, across Britain, across Europe and across the world. And see just how many traders we get and the mix of products we get. And if you want to help the Ghanaian cocoa farmer, then you actually give him access to that market. Let him come and bring a 40-foot container load of, uh, of cocoa to, to, to Norwich and sell it to the Cayley's representative. And that's real fair trade, access to the market. Thank you. In order, to address the, in order to address the issue of contracts, we have to say that starting in this market, you can't cheat poor people. You can't charge people more because they're only buying a small amount. You can't charge one price for cash and one price for credit. You can't undercut the other traders. You can't hide from people what they're actually buying. If we get that far, then the next thing we do is extend that to contracts amongst ourselves. And we refuse to pay more for taking goods on credit. So this is where we all need to get to. And of course, when we say contracts, we extend this to employment contracts, partnership contracts, shareholding contracts, mortgage contracts. They've all got to be looked at, all cleaned up. And we, and we have to take out the usurious elements out of all of these contracts. All the terms of your loan, your employment, your shareholdings are all pre-written. They just stick your name on it. And we accept it that way. And, we, and we, we, we tend to think that the government won't let us be cheated. But that's not true. Um, in this current uh, $700 billion and how many other pounds and how many euros bailout, um, when it was suggested, I think, by some people that the money should extend to covering people who've lost their houses, the bank said, no, forget that. And it's all documented. It's all there. It's nothing made up. So individually and as organisations, we must refuse point-blank to be party to unfair or oppressive contracts and develop amongst us codes of practice and templates that we can use when dealing with each other. We have to take this on, and I'll personally, we, I'll personally work with anyone who wants to take that on. I know many people will think this a mad, impossible idea. I expect to see some smiling there. Um, but like they said 10 years ago or 15 years ago, when we said lots of banks will crash... People thought that was mad then. When we said turn your savings into gold, people thought it was mad then. When we said the housing price uh, boom will bust, people thought we were mad. When we said after 9-11, be careful, they'll be eroding all your rights and liberties, not just ours, if you like. Um, people thought we were mad then. So in a sense, it doesn't really matter if people think it's mad. It's that fact is it's happening. And we have to be prepared. And these things will uh, happen.
the system is crashing around us. The banks are easy to deal with. Only use them when we have to. That's straightforward, the banks. If we don't use them, they lose their power. If we don't use the banks, they lose their power. It's because we, we perceive we need them. That's what makes them so strong. Um, so basically, people should turn their assets... I could say gold, silver. People should really seriously think of turning their, their, their savings into tangible assets, whether it is gold, whether it is silver, or invest in them, actually finding uh, useful and trustworthy entrepreneurs and investing in people, empowering people. Take a chance. You may, not, you may get you know, a little less return than the, 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 the interest rate, but still empower people. Remember, I'm saying that Walter Rodney, Malcolm X, Gandhi, Mandela, Martin Luther King, Huey P. Newton, Marcus Garvey, the student protesters in France, the Vietnam War protesters in 1968, the anti-Iraq campaigners today, the environmentalists today, I'm saying that this is where it's at. You have to tackle it from both the macro and micro levels, at home and internationally. You have to deal with markets, currencies and contracts. Now, usually when I talk, I don't sort of give references, I just talk and say, you take it from me or not. But, <sighs> trying to change. Um, if you can dig out an address by... Senator Ron Paul, I think it's Senator, um, the American Senator, he gave a talk the other day, which I actually found on YouTube as well as um, um, talking, about the gold, talking about banks and gold. And really, it's, um, he says it ten times more articulately and better than I could in much more detail. So I'd urge people to try and find that. Um, and remember, he was actually one of the front runners for the Republican candidacy. Um, but he didn't get much airplay, funny enough. There's a man also called Paul Collier who wrote a book called The Bottom Billion which gives some very useful insights into how, uh, in his opinion, to help the world's poorest people. But he gives some very good insights into how governments work. It's also very useful to listen, I don't know if people know this, uh, TED, I think it stands for Technical, what have I got here? Technology, Education, Design, TED, and there's a, a website and a series of talks with lots of uh, if you like, the world's top thinkers uh, give lots of presentations. And they had a series of TED Africa. And, and this issue of aid and so on to Africa really came up. So if you really want to get an insight of all about that and understand what I'm saying about it being trade and not aid, I think that's a good place to start. Um, and in a sense, me being Muslim, you could say, I've been directed to these things because Islam has still talked very strongly about usury. And probably the most significant publication of recent years is the Fatwa on Banking by Umar Vadilio, um, which really goes into detail explaining the whole thing about the banking system. So again, I'd urge people to, to get hold of that if they can do and, and, it's, um, and have a read. Now this talk is, is really, as I said, it's part of Black History Month. And... I've been asked a few times about why Black History Month. And, I, and I've personally been saying two things. I'm saying that, um, well, why people should look into history in general. And, and I've been saying two things why people should look into history. One, to take inspiration from those who faced what we faced or, or um, more than what we faced and how they dealt with it and how they overcame it, or at least tried to overcome it. And two, to heed warnings so we can learn from history so that we don't go the same road in terms of making mistakes that were made in the past. The problem, of course, with inspiration is that lots of the people who um, we talk about in 1968, 
ended up murdered, assassinated, or jailed. So uh, that's uh, <coughs> not that inspiring in one sense. The, um, from the point of view of heeding warnings, I want to mention some work done by the, an American journalist and author, Naomi Wolf, who wrote a book entitled The End of America, in which she points out ten steps that seem to have, well, from her, she thinks, emanated from Mussolini in the 20s and that are adopted by every, as she calls, oppressionist regime when an when a, when a open state, she says, is beginning to close in. She gives these sort of ten things. Um, but I think they actually won't go back before Mussolini, to be honest. She mentions Italy and Mussolini in the 20s, Germany and the rise of Hitler in the 30s, Russia at the same time, East Germany in the 50s, Czechoslovakia in the 60s, Chile with Pinochet in the 70s, and China in the 80s, and more recently, Thailand and Burma. These are what she, she refers a lot to these places. Whether coming from the left or the right, it's about how an open, vibrant society becomes closed. It's not about democracy, because all these places, not, not all these places, half these places were in fact democracies. So it's not about democracy. Um, her point, her warning, is that these things are happening in America today, and she's understandably frightened. The first thing she says is hype. Hype up an internal or external threat, real or imagined, like the sleeper cells by starting, and obviously the thing like, she says, so people hype up a threat. When you're closing a society, the things that happen. She says, so people hype up an internal threat, make more of a threat, you know, make it more than what it is. And she says that's what happened with the thing about sleeper cells. Some would say that's what happens with Al-Qaeda and things like that. Some will say, okay. Um, two, she says, create a secret prison system and establish torture. The thing about the torture, of course, um, in fact, it doesn't work unless people know about it. So to be honest, when you think of it, all these pictures of Guantanamo Bay, it's, it's very unlikely that someone sneaked, you know, snuck these pictures out of Guantanamo Bay. It's actually more likely that people, they were sanctioned. Because if you're torturing people, torture is not really about getting information from people. They can get that very easily. Um, it's often about people knowing that we are torturing and we will torture you. So often the torture has to be known, made known that we do it. Um, three, she says, create a private militia to intimidate the, the population. And I didn't know this, but apparently the Blackwater, the, the um, I don't know if you call it mercenary troops or the sort of private army or security guards that are operating with basic immunity, if you like, in, in, in um, Iraq, were also given a contract to patrol, patrol the streets of New Orleans after the hurricane, um, which is quite surprising. So private, private army on the streets. And more recently, I think the, the first of this month, I think for the first time in 100 years, a U.S. Army battalion has been posted in America um, to prepare for acts of civil disobedience or something like that. So something like the first time in 100 years. Um, four, she says, increase internal surveillance on society, or at least let people think they're being surveyed um, under surveillance, whether it be by CCTV, maybe speed cameras. Um, Five, she says, infiltrate and harass groups. She says, six, arbitrary de detention of civilians. Uh, seven, she says, target key individuals, which uh, happens a lot, where people sort of, uh, their employers get a word in their ear, be careful about employing this person. Um, eight, she says, restriction of the press. And that usually boils down to charging journalists with treason. Um, and accuse, nine, accuse any dissenting voices of treason. 
which in a sense is if you say anything, again, we get things like if you say something against Iraq, it's easy for people to say you're not supporting our troops. And, it, you know, in a sense, it, it can always be termed that you're trying to get our troops killed. So, um, so that kind of language. And then 10, finally, you suspend the rule of law and impose martial law. And funny enough, with this, uh, with this bill, this $700 billion bailout bill in America the other day, a lot of senators said they were threatened, actually threatened, privately with martial law. They said, if you don't vote for this bill, the stock market will go down another thousand and another thousand, and then we'll have martial law. And they're saying it. It's now being widely reported, as I said. And you know what they say? If these things happen in America first, it normally comes here. Carrying on from that, in 1954... An American psychologist, uh, Gordon Allport, devised a scale of how prejudice develops in a society from something minor or seemingly minor to something major and sinister. So if we add in Allport's scale of justice, he says things begin with what he calls anti-locution, where the majority group feel uh, freely make jokes about my, the minority group and perpetuate negative stereotypes, including hate speech. And this is tolerated as harmless, fun, or the sticks and stones thing is, you know, invoked. Just sticks and stones will hurt, uh, what? Break my bones, but names will never hurt me. So it's like, what are they making that fuss about? Um, then you have avoidance, where the minority group become isolated, even though no actual harm may be intended. This leads directly to actual discrimination by, by denying these people opportunities. So whether it be work or whatever opportunities they get. So this is directly harming people now. Um, and in, inevitably, this leads to physical attacks, and then after that, um, which includes maybe lynching sometimes, and obviously then finally extermination or genocide can happen. So that's this Gordon Orbel saying, what can happen? So if you let one thing slide, these things can happen. So in 1968, there were riots all over the place, and in 2008... I think we need to protest our displeasure at the financial system in particular and what it's doing. We need to protest our displeasure at the way government is riding roughshod over our liberties and eliminating all those rights such as trial by jury and even the rights to trial at all and being considered innocent until proven guilty. I'm saying that we have to intervene when we see things happening, all of us. When we see people being harassed at airports, we have to step in and say, come on, stop picking on that person just because of their name or their colour. We actually have to be bold. Um, um, and when we see people arrest being happened, people being arrested, sometimes we have to make inquiries to find out why was that person being arrested. Phone the police station, phone someone senior. Find out why that person was arrested and what's happening. I don't think it's... We can't just sit back. Um, we can't just get in the mode of saying that, you know, what did that person do, you know, um, assuming they're guilty. There's no harm in finding out. They are supposedly our own police force. And of course, when we hear people saying things that are hateful and nasty, um, we should step in, we shouldn't accept it. We should definitely not accept it. We should say something. In fact, we do have legal channels we can go down, but we should say something. We shouldn't just accept it. We shouldn't let people think they can get away with saying things. Horrible, nasty things, as we said, it leads to worse. 
I'm saying we, don't, we have to make sure we don't allow the government to invoke the race or religion card when they say that innocent people have nothing to fear with added surveillance, stop and search, ID cards, monitoring phone calls and the like. No violence. It's not a call for armed struggle. That would be madness anyway. But if we vote, vote strategically. As a block, hold politicians to account. Withdraw from total dependence on the current financial system. Put some of your savings in tangible assets. Refuse to be party to unfair contracts. Support the establishment of open markets here in Norwich, as I said before, or wherever you are. And I particularly and specifically call on those involved in the fair trade movement in Norwich to join us in pursuing these goals. I specifically invite those involved in the Transition Norwich initiative to make contact and join us in these matters. And all those, in pursue, all those involved in pursuing equalities and justice to join us. And of course all those who want good for the people of Norfolk and Norwich to join us in putting these things into practice. So I thank you for listening and hope uh, you take this as a call to action and unity rather than division. And if there are one or two questions, I'm sure, um, to, um, or comments to kind of uh, clarify things, I'm sure we can take that. Thank you. Were there any questions or comments? Yeah. Oh. I was hoping no. <laughs> I think you would have given this speech. <laughs> um, I do think what I'm saying. I think I think that um, that all these people were um, beginning to see behind the scenes. I think I, I think all of them were recognising that, um, that, in a sense, if you like racism. I think um, I mean I, I will have a view, but I think that racism usually stems from, to me, ignorance and fear. I think that's the key, the key elements that sort of promote sort of racism. I think it's ignorance, people don't know, and, and fear. And I think obviously it's fear of um, your provision. People fear for their jobs and how they're going to survive and fear these other people are coming to take what's mine. So I think that, um, I think that all, these, all these people would have recognised, Rodney and others, were, if they didn't recognise it, were beginning to recognise it. And I think sometimes you, you, you have to deal with what's in front of you. So... You can't, like for example, the Black Panthers in, in, in the 60s, you can't, um, and Malcolm X, and people like that, you can't um, not talk about your own people without sounding like a racist. You know, you have to, in a sense, there almost must be a racist sort of sounding rhetoric to it, you know, a race rhetoric to it. But I think that um, given the freedom, given the chance, people began to talk about these things. And as I said, all these people talked about oppressed people everywhere. The Black Panthers who were so militant and, you know, they were saying, you know, if a cop shoots at you, shoot them back. Well, not, no, they didn't say cops. They said, if a pig shoots at you, shoot them back. You know, they were quite militant in that sense. But they, if you listen to their rhetoric, it's always about oppressed people everywhere. You know, so um, I think that um, that's it. All these people, uh, Walter Rodney and all these people would have started talking about the financial system 